Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. What is a human being? Every generation our scattered tribes change, and how much more so when we are scattered to a million worlds? Is humanity an identity or a fundamental set of DNA? So today we'll be looking at the future of humanity in a more literal sense, asking what might change about us in the generations to come. This is obviously a bit tricky since we have to consider things like genetic engineering and cybernetics, or even folks entirely leaving genetics behind in favor of an uploaded digital life, though we'll save that topic for next week. It's also worth considering more natural paths, how we tend to evolve if things just stay the same here on Earth or how we'd evolve or adapt to different individual worlds we might settle in the space age. Critical to the whole notion though is that successful species not only don't stay the same over generations, but typically diverge into many different species with time. One could argue that we're all the same species as the original animal that presumably evolved into us and cats and dogs and insects. This approach to species classification is called clades, tracking the descendants of a common ancestor, and we often use it when contemplating future humanity since it's entirely possible hundreds of different species of human descent would be around calling themselves that. They might do so even if they were so divorced they couldn't interbreed anymore, though that is a debatable concept in a futuristic context where one has mastered genetics. Of course we call ourselves Homo sapiens and it's common for science fiction to coin new terms for future humans, like Homo superior or so on. I suppose it would stand to reason that if you had relatively isolated populations living on Mars, the Moon, and Earth for hundreds of generations, you might see enough divergence that folks could use terms like Homo Martian, Homo Luna, and Homo Terran respectively, and we did look at how low gravity might affect life in our recent episode Life on a Low Gravity Planet. Usually the context in sci-fi these days has more to do with a change in nature not very related to the environment though like developing bigger brains or psychic or mutant powers or so on. Amusingly, humans appear to have smaller brains than we did 10 or 20,000 years ago, and psychic abilities wouldn't seem to be in the cards, and while mutation can grant new powers, it's a slow process. Fast major mutation is usually synonymous with death, not superhuman abilities. Evolution is the process of minor mutations slowly bringing about changes that make a species better able to survive and reproduce. But that's only because the mutations that aren't survival beneficial, or at least neutral, die off. And most mutation is a negative, and it basically never produces some massive single generation advantage like you'd see in something like Marvel Comics X-Men. These things take time, hundreds of generations at a minimum, and you really wouldn't expect them inside an interplanetary civilization that was fairly unified and had a lot of trade and migration unless a lot more than a hundred generations had passed, as that's only a couple thousand years. Not that you don't get some trade emergence in shorter times, especially in very large sample populations, you can obviously tell the difference between folks whose ancestors come from the various corners of the African, European, and Asian supercontinent, 
but even places fairly isolated from them, like the native populations of the Americas and Australia, are not particularly distinct from any other human, medically or psychologically, though you can get specific traits or medical conditions that are far more common in one human clade. These usually aren't very related to their environment and just a byproduct of the given genetic condition having been more common in that line without having to do with whether they hailed from the Amazonian jungles or Siberian tundra. But the game is a bit different if the core environment is radically different, like the gravity or air pressure, and of course time and isolation, even if it's not total isolation, can divulge these far more. Now when we talk about terraforming other planets, the notion is usually to make them as Earth-like as you can, the word terra meaning Earth, and what's more, most of the artificial habitats we so often discuss on the show, like the O'Neill Cylinder, try to replicate Earth as much as possible. This not only might have a tendency to prevent much genetic drift inspired by weird environments, but actually cause a loss of intelligence amusingly enough. We're not really aiming for Earth after all, rather we're aiming for ideal Earth and do so even more in our homes. A highly automated society on an artificial world might tend to start losing intelligence, as it is an expensive trait meant for solving survival problems which they would tend not to have. Plus, any mutation to the brain is more likely to be a negative than a positive, but if it doesn't alter the survival odds because you live in paradise, you might get a drift toward being a bit dull-minded. Now as a few quick caveats on the notion of devolving intelligence, First, intelligence has a different survival value to modern civilizations than in earlier times, it's not really being used for moment-to-moment survival in terms of food or not getting eaten. We use it in all sorts of social survival contexts too, and those only really would cease being around in a paradise setup if it was also an individual paradise, such as a personalized virtual reality utopia. Second, creatures lose things in evolution if they represent a survival burden without benefit, It costs too much to keep it going, fueling and cutting a big brain around for instance, but the thing about paradise is that you aren't short of food and aren't getting killed by predators because you're not fast enough lugging that brain around. And third, the handy thing about intelligence is you can notice stuff like people getting dumber from their environment and do something about it, so there's a bit of a catch-22. If you're smart enough to build paradises that might make you get dumb, you're also smart enough to be aware of the concern and handle it. Though of course paradise might still incline those born to it to be lazy or decadent and ignore the problem. I mentioned individual virtual reality utopias a moment ago, it would seem likely that those who dwell solely in those might not be strictly human anymore in favor of mind uploading, and again it's our topic for next week so we'll explore it more there, but it might have some peculiar effects on anatomy. As an example, since any virtual reality sufficient to cause mass migration to virtual lives automatically means a level of technology capable of running robots smart enough to do virtually all our work, you can't make a passable computer character who people will feel like interacting with as much as a real person without having artificial intelligence that can do most jobs after all. So people living entirely inside these might not even need a real world job, or have any desire not to be in the virtual world, and lose any interest in what their body is like beyond its basic capacity to endure. It's conceivable such people, given many generations, might mutate into something not much more than a brain with some connections and the basic support apparatus of a heart and lungs and organs, limbs shriveling up or being amputated. They may tend to have artificial hearts and lungs and so on to do the work, and avoid having the issue of those natural organs decaying from neglect after a couple years without exercise. If something like that was supplemental, future generations might slowly lose their natural organs entirely. Now you might ask how they are breeding to propagate this mutation, 
And this is not a major issue since they could probably swap DNA with a chosen partner and have a tank-grown kid. Indeed, given the implied sophistication of the non-human characters in a virtual environment, you might not need human parents in favor of elaborate simulated parents. That's also a potential option for space colonization. As we discussed in Seeding the Stars, one example of a seed ship for interstellar colonization is a small ship with self-replicating machinery that can arrive in some new system and start terraforming and seeding life from onboard frozen or digital DNA banks. If your computers are good enough, human level AI or better, they can presumably grow humans in tanks and raise them. Many of those kids might be a bit adverse to regular reproduction methods and opt to tank grow their children too, or even skip on parenting trusting Grandma AI to do it better than they could, and might get evidence backing that point by comparing those kids to those born and raised more traditionally on that colony. An upsetting notion, but a computer designed to raise kids might be better at it than actual people. Were that so, or perceived to be so, successive waves of colonies might be ever more prone to adopt that approach and might start figuring that their reproductive organs were fairly redundant. A pretty critical part of normal evolution in complex organisms is sexual reproduction, as such organisms tend to have very long generations compared to, say, an amoeba, so swapping in DNA allows you to collect all the mutations every member of that species has acquired, not just your long chain of singular ancestors where the organism simply divides itself to reproduce. A high-tech civilization is presumably quite capable of reproduction by cloning as well as mixing DNA from several people rather than just two, but they also have the option of suppressing mutation entirely by simply printing DNA from a digital recording. This is a technology we already have, albeit rather slowly. In the last decade the price of synthesizing a pair of DNA letters, your G, A, T, and C's, has dropped from a dollar apiece to about ten cents. But that still means at the moment, since human DNA has three billion base pairs, there would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. However, this is exactly the sort of process we'd expect to get vastly cheaper, and, even if it didn't, you could use this or any number of other techniques to avoid concepts like copying fatigue to keep your civilization's DNA the same as it used to be. You wouldn't need to print DNA for every kid, just add it in occasionally. Alternatively, to insert some new bit of DNA, I'd not be surprised if even a century from now it was fairly common to have your child's DNA printed from optimized configurations of the two parents, or one parent, or a number of people, or even just a relatively standard template from digital archives and models. You stick that in an egg that had its DNA removed and grow, classically or in a tank. But I'd also imagine this wouldn't be even a bit universal. And if it's not, it means you'd have folks going out into the galaxy who did not employ it, or those who did and were fairly open to experimenting, both of which imply a lot of genetic divergence as folks settle new worlds. It's not inevitable though, and it's worth considering that there's a chance you'd have a fairly rigid attitude toward letting human DNA change too much, especially if our civilization ended up having some fear, justified or not, of genetically engineered people or mutants. We are mostly discussing humans today, but the episode isn't exclusively about humans. Be it hypothetical alien civilizations or us, you have to decide before you start shipping people out to far stars if you're trying to enforce a fairly static human template, because once everyone moves out, you're not going to be able to change your mind short of war. Now a homeworld or home system trying to conquer its colonies might tend to sound fairly futile, but as we've discussed before, you probably would still have more folks living around our sun than all the other stars combined until you'd settled a million worlds or more. 
You can pack an awful lot of folks into a Dyson Swarm around a single sun, and until it's fully populated, with presumably around a billion times as many people as we have now, it is likely to be growing faster in raw numbers than all its colonies combined. In the end, so long as you've still got raw materials, you can keep building and growing around your own star far faster and more easily than you can around other stars, especially considering travel time and resources pumped into the ship and trip. So unless most of your population growth at home is getting put on ships, home grows faster. Those Dyson Swarms are generally assumed to be made of trillions of O'Neill Cylinders or similar, and each one is potentially very capable of being self-enclosed and living in total isolation for very long times, probably even more so if you've been spending vast amounts of research effort into designing generation ships, which have to be pretty capable of extended self-sufficiency, and are basically just a station with a ship drive. Or a bigger ship drive anyway, space station habitats would presumably tend to have an engine on them for maneuvering. Those generation ships might be quite the breeding spot for mutation and divergence themselves, even more than the colonies they founded. Weird to think, but even as your colonies are terraforming worlds here or deep out in space, you might be getting even more genetic divergence on those artificial cylinder worlds right here. After all, such things are generally expected to be home to fewer than a million folks, and that's the sort of situation that could easily give you a setup that allowed rapid divergence, much like a fairly isolated island would. Home might have more genetic divergence than distant interstellar colonies, and sooner too, interstellar travel takes a long time. Some seed ship using DNA samples from the 22nd century might be using those exact same samples as it slowly works its way from world to world toward the galactic rim. When it arrives it's likely to be more like the 2200th century, but still using that 22nd century DNA data. That could result in very long generations in that sense, and that's not the only way that might happen. If folks have access to the sort of medical or nanotechnology that lets them achieve biological immortality by constant repair, you could potentially have someone from the 22nd century still kicking around the 2200th century with the same biology as now and without the aid of some form of stasis or relativity, and still having children. It's easy to imagine those distant colonies growing ever more divergent from us, but we'd be divulging back here just as fast and maybe faster, especially throwing technology into things. It's quite possible that within a century or two we'd have figured out how to engage in uplifting, taking an animal and genetically tweaking it to be more intelligent, like an ape or dolphin or elephant or cat or dog, but with human intelligence. If that happens it would seem almost inevitable that you'd end up with relatively large civilizations like that. Keep in mind that in a Dyson Swarm you have room for at least a billion times Earth's population, and there are more than a billion stars in this galaxy we could settle and eventually do the same to. In something like that, where even an O'Neill cylinder or a small conglomeration of them could house a modest small nation inside, you could have trillions of those around our Sun, you might have thousands of different types of uplifted animals, each having cylinder habitats of their own with millions or billions of them inhabiting them, and still only being a tiny fraction of the whole population of the swarm. This isn't necessarily limited to space either, if Earth ends up as some ecumenopolis covered in arcologies, and huge habitation towers or a Matrioska shell world, you could easily end up with such hab towers or shell world layers being as isolated and divergent from each other as space habitats. It's weird, if rather darkly amusing, that you might end up with Morlocks, more people or chuds living in lower levels of some massive arcology supertower, with tens of thousands of stories and levels, each the size of a large city. Though I'm reasonably sure folks wouldn't intentionally engineer themselves into Morlocks or more people, unless they were literal moles we'd uplifted, 
They might still be called that though, I like to assume future civilizations are a lot more enlightened than we are now, but I'm also a realist and I imagine there'd be a fair amount of folks who didn't like their neighbors, and if your neighbors have four arms or four legs it might make that a bit more likely. They probably would have the ability to engineer themselves into things like centaurs or even some Pegasus centaur critter in a low gravity habitat. You could easily have humans divulging by genetic tinkering into those uplifted animal populations and vice versa, and all presumably joining interstellar colony fleets or sending out their own. This doesn't even go into all the cybernetic and transhuman options, let alone the sort of mega-civilizations you could produce inside virtual simulated worlds, which can potentially hold millions of times more people than a station or civilization running on classic biology, if their computerized versions of neurons are more energy efficient. Even cyborg civilizations can really pack folks in, since they presumably only need to biologically power a brain depending on if we're assuming you still need a mostly biological brain to count as a human cyborg. Needless to say, you can get pretty far off the modern human template if you're not constrained by biology at all. You can go cram your brain into a giant mecha or have a spaceship for a body. You can also presumably start adding cybernetic components to your brain or even just growing more brains, or networking folks together. You might get variations on hive minds, minimalist or full-on modules into an individual, or an individual having multiple bodies, cloned or android. All of these options can presumably be set up to be hereditary too. I occasionally joke that the sheer divergence we'd expect as we colonize the galaxy means that should we find the galaxy empty of other intelligent life and really want to meet aliens, all we'd have to do is wait a million years and visit a distant colony. However, you probably wouldn't even need to get on an interstellar ship. Not only would a Dyson Swarm around our Sun probably have a vast amount of genetic divergence, and other types of divergence, but this is home, and anybody we send out is likely to have at least some of their descendants decide to come home and visit, hopefully peacefully. As mentioned, there's not likely to be much difference between an interstellar spaceship and a cylinder habitat in a swarm except for the very large ship drive and fuel reserves, so they could just show up and park in the swarm without having to worry about finding a specific place that would welcome them. Also, because the fuel and energy needs to move such spaceships around is so huge compared to what you need to run life support on them, even if you showed up with just the remnants of your fuel kept for emergency maneuvering, it's probably enough to run your power needs for very long times, thousands if not millions of years. So you probably can immigrate fairly easily so long as there's not some organized hostility toward outsiders, in which case on top of all the homegrown divergence you'd be getting folks wandering in from all over the galaxy. There's no real maximum size to such a swarm so long as your density doesn't get too high to manage heat issues. If you assumed every inhabited system, after getting decently settled, sent home some big habitat ship every century or so, then a fully inhabited galaxy would be shipping over a billion such habitat ships to Earth, or Sol anyway, every single year. And that's ignoring any trade between systems, just the occasional small group in any given star system that feels like making the pilgrimage. Presumably they're also often doing this to their neighbors or back down the long chain of colonies they leapfrogged out from Earth to Galaxy's Edge along. You also might see a lot of that colonizing being done by seed ships or gardener ships that just slowly meander out from Earth, stopping at new worlds and systems to deposit some colonists and restock on materials before moving on. Those gardener ships, see the Galactic Gardeners episode for details, are basically breeding up more people between stops since they have decades between each and leave a fraction of their people on each new world. 
Minnie might reach the Galactic Rim, then turn around and follow their path back to go home and see all those seeds they planted that have been growing up over tens of thousands of years since they left. Those are likely to often be viewed as something like religious artifacts, or even exactly that, as they make their procession back to Earth, and I'd not be surprised if whole fleets got picked up along the way wanting to make the trip, same as you might get fleets trailing them on the original journey, catching up to join their honored founders on their quests. I mention this because it's often suggested there be little to no interstellar trade, beyond information, which may be the case, but even if it was you'd still expect things along these lines to result in a fair amount of immigration and pilgrimage. Whether or not such exchanges would result in more homogenous civilizations or even greater and faster divergence is hard to say, maybe both. All of which seems to say that almost no matter what route humanity follows, or humanity's creation such as AI or uplifted or entirely engineered critters, they're going to diverge vastly and a lot faster than simple evolution would cause, even ignoring the weird environments they might be adapting to that might speed that up. And given that galactic colonization is something you do on a timeline of a million years, and that such civilizations would presumably be kicking around in some fashion for far longer, that's already enough time for huge divergence even in a strictly natural way. So the future ought to be a fairly weird place. If there are no aliens in the galaxy, you just need to wait a bit. And that doesn't even include the more transhuman or digital consciousness options that we'll look at next week. We'll get to the upcoming schedule and announcements in a moment, but first, I probably don't need to tell most folks watching this show that it's good to learn new skills and to stay busy, or the value of online learning, or of learning in general. New skills don't just offer new hobbies or professional development, but they can often give a great feeling of confidence, purpose, and security. If you're a lifelong learner interested in picking up some new skills, I'd recommend Skillshare. Whether you're a beginner, a pro, a dabbler, or a master, Skillshare has thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics from experts to help you learn. I am particularly fond of the creative writing classes, and if you're one of the many folks who watches this show and finds yourself thinking up good ideas for science fiction novels or short stories you'd like to write, try out some of their creative writing courses like Yeon Lee's Writing Character Driven Short Stories. She gives an excellent overview of everything from how to get started to getting published. Skillshare is an online learning community for creatives where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey, and members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, with hands-on projects and feedback from a community of millions. If you'd like to give it a try, the first 1,000 of my subscribers to click in the link in the description will get a two-month free trial of premium membership so you can explore your creativity. Act now and start learning today. So speaking of communities, as a quick reminder for channel regulars I got married this last weekend and so while the episodes are coming out on Thursdays while I'm away, I won't be responding to comments on the episodes till I get back from my honeymoon. I'd be very grateful to any of you who have time to pop in on those comments and answer any questions folks have that you feel like you could give a good answer to. I'd also suggest trying out our social media forums on Discord, Facebook, and Reddit, which are linked in the episode description if you're looking for friendly communities of folks to discuss ideas with, whether it's for science or science fiction. I'm also thinking one of these days we need to have a short story contest on the channel, it's a notion I kick around from time to time and probably overdue. As for upcoming episodes, we were talking about genetic divergence but that's only one pathway we might follow in the future, or rather, many pathways. Still, it's often suggested we might go digital instead of genetic, becoming a post-biological civilization, and next week we'll explore that idea more in Life as a Digital Being. 
We were also talking today about spreading out to distant stars in this universe, but there may be other universes out there and in two weeks we'll explore that notion and dig into the science and theory of the various multiverse and alternate reality ideas in parallel universes and alternate realities. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and share with others. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.